of God's Word. We know that we can't understand God's Word unless we're in fellowship. The teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit is vital to our um, inhale of His Word, to letting His Word get into our soul and to the uh, right lobe or heart so that it is usable by the Holy Spirit and applicable as we go through life. So let's begin with using 1 John 1, 9 in the privacy of our souls, admitting or acknowledging our sins to God. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word, that from Your Word we know that there are means and methods to handle any situation in life that You've provided for us. In Your grace, You have provided everything we will ever need in life, no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the problem, no matter how overwhelming it seems, we know that we can have uh, peace, tranquility, contentment, joy if we apply Your Word. Father, it's important for us to take the time to learn Your Word because we cannot apply what we don't know and we cannot know but we don't take the time, the energy, and the discipline to learn. So we pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in the first chapter of James. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, coming to Bible class is a time of endurance, especially if you're sitting back by one of the windows that's open. And I've had a couple of people make comments that now and then when it's hard enough to concentrate and to listen when the windows are open. It makes it even more difficult if people are talking or shuffling papers or trying to, you know, move around a lot. And uh, that's very distracting. So let's try to keep movement to a minimum just in consideration of others part of good manners because you never know how distracting that is and you lean over and you comment to the person sitting next to you about something you hear and even though you're you're interested, uh, the people behind you all of a sudden are distracted by your comments. So just try to keep any comments to a minimum. Turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10.13. Last week we had a little glitch with the... uh, uh, Microphone, so we didn't get everything recorded. We need to review anyway, so we'll go back over 1 Corinthians 10.13 because this is one of the most important promises in God's Word. If you're going to face the heartaches, the difficulties, the adversities in life by using God's Word, then one of the key things is to know the promises of God's Word. And this is one that you should commit to memory. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that you have not come into any temptation or there is no temptation or testing really it's not temptation the word here is perosmos which can mean temptation in some context but here it clearly means testing there is no testing that has come upon you except what is common to man but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability but will provide with the testing will provide also with the testing a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, last week when we looked at this verse, we talked about how temptation, that testing, the Greek word here is perosmos. Is that a new crack? Or have I just not noticed that? It's new? 
How did that happen? Perosmos. P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. Now this can refer to temptation or testing that is outside the soul. We'll draw a circle here to represent the soul. Out here you have an external circumstance. Situation, adversary, adversity, pressure, whatever it is that begins to put pressure on the soul. To relieve that pressure, we have a sin nature in, that resides in the genetic structure of our body that then puts pressure on the volition and the mentality in our soul to get us to choose a, ne- a negative volition, to choose a course of action in rejection of doctrine that, that seems to us, in our human viewpoint wisdom, to alleviate this pressure right away so we don't go through that testing. Uh, it can be a, uh, to handle it emotionally through anger, resentment, bitterness, or it can be to handle it through some kind of overt sin or mental attitude sin. The sin nature is the source. Well, we have to understand there's an objective aspect to testing, which is the circumstances that arise that uh, give our, our, our sin nature an inclination in one direction or the other. The, the sin nature then responds with an internal temptation. All temptation arises from the sin nature, and when the negative volition in our soul acts upon that uh, temptation from the sin nature, it is at that point that it becomes sin. Now, we all have a sin nature. So, we have a new sin nature diagram. Sin nature has two areas. The area of strength that produces human good. These are er- this is called the area of strength because these are the areas in which we're least susceptible to temptation. We feel pretty good about the fact that in these areas, we don't give in. We're not going to sin like that person sitting at the other end of the pew. The other area... Down south is the area of personal sin. This is when the temp- where temptation arises is from our area of weakness. Galatians 5, 19-21 and Proverbs 8, 13. How visible is this from the back row? Pretty good? Okay, I can't, I can't tell when I'm sitting in my computer how small I can go on the, uh, on the font size. So, uh, Do what? Yeah, that was a navy, but the printer on the screen, it was one color. When it printed, it was a lot lighter. <laughs> so that's going to have to be modified. The, the printer doesn't print in as wide a variety of colors as the screen says it should. The area of weakness is a source of temptation. Once the area of weakness puts forth the temptation, we act upon it with the negative volition in our soul, then... We're under the control of the sin nature and the, everything kicks in, the area of human good, because all good deeds that we perform after we're out of fellowship under the control of the sin nature are all human good. Wood, hay, and stubble, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. The motivator of the sin nature is the lust patterns. Lust patterns include approbation lust, power lust, money lust, materialism lust, revenge lust, sexual lust, social lust, chemical lust, crusader lust, Inordinate ambition, which leads to inordinate competition, and pleasure lust. These are the various lust patterns. These are the motivations within the soul. This drives the soul in one of two directions, depending upon our, our natural trend. Some people will trend towards asceticism or legalism. If uh, you're motivated by a lust pattern of, of approbation lust, you want the approval of people, or you're motivated by crusader lust, 
you're motivated by inordinate ambition and competition, you may be driven towards a trend of asceticism and legalism. If you're really driven towards inordinate ambition, you're going to appear to be legalistic and righteous on the one hand, but you may adopt licentious antinomian practices on the other hand in order to achieve your ends. The end justifies the means mentality may may derive from that. So the trends are in one extreme towards asceticism and legalism. Asceticism is the idea that I'm going to give up things and that's going to somehow impress God and make me more spiritual spiritual because of my diet, because I don't do this, I don't do that, or I engage in certain religious practices, I fast, I walk on my knees, uh, climb 50 stairs to get to uh, some chapel, uh, whatever it may be. That's all asceticism. Legalism is the establishment of false standards or the establishment of biblical standards of right and wrong but thinking that if you adhere to those standards, that somehow that, that impresses God. That's what legalism is. Uh, and the other trend is towards antinomianism. Antinomianism is from two Greek words, anti, which means against, and namos, which means law. It's the idea there are no rules. It's, the, it's uh, treating grace licentiously that because Jesus Christ died for all my sins and sin's no longer an issue, then whoopee, let's just go sin. Because obviously God's going to forgive us. Well, there's still consequences. There's the law of volitional responsibility and there's divine discipline. Just because we're forgiven doesn't mean there aren't consequences. doesn't mean there still isn't suffering uh, for... If you confess your sins, it becomes suffering for blessing, but there's suffering for uh, uh, discipline. And lasciviousness, which has to do with sexual sin. So if you have motivated by sexual lust, you'll probably go move towards a trend of lasciviousness and then you may shock yourself and react towards some sort of legalism and um, ultimately, if you follow these trends out without confessing your sins and, and recovering spiritually and moving forward in your Christian life, then you can end up in immoral degeneracy or in moral degeneracy. That's the realm of the sin nature. The sin nature is, especially in the area of weakness, is the source of temptation that is internal. But what this passage is talking about is external tests, tests of adversity. There is no testing that is external There is no testing that has come upon you except what is common to man. Common to man, we said last week, there are various different types or categories of disasters or adversity. There is social disaster in which we lose social life, friendship, broken romance, marital problems, personality conflicts, or injustice from others. Secondly, there is historical disaster. Historical disasters related to economic disaster from recession or depression, warfare, being defeated or disarmed by another nation, uh, diplomatic defeat, loss of establishment principles among, um, among the people, loss of freedom, uh, increase in taxation, violence of revolution, becoming the victim of terrorism and persecution. Uh, the third category of adversity is criminal disaster, criminal adversity in which you become a victim of robbery, rape, embezzlement, blackmail, child abuse, incest, uh, and any other crime. D, vilification disaster. This is when you become the victim of gossip, slander, maligning, judgment, judging, being uh, uh, someone uh, lying about you and destroying your reputation. Uh, five, you have rejection disaster. This comes from social isolation, business isolation, unfair treatment, a victim of, of uh, prejudice, rejection by someone you love, a victim of role model arrogance, a victim of poor management, being passed over for promotion, or being fired from your job unfairly. All of these have to do with rejection. Everybody goes through real or imagined rejection at various stages in their life. Uh, six, there are weather disasters. 
Weather disasters include uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, ice storms, uh, disasters from lightning. I think we've seen various things like that in this area in the last couple of days. Um, seventh is loss of health, including all categories of disease, pain, terminal illness, starvation. Um, eight is handicap disasters, such as blindness, paralysis. Uh, and then finally... Uh, Nine would be the death of loved ones. Scripture teaches, though, that even though these various areas of adversity or tests are common to everybody, they're common to mankind. That's not a crack. We've got a that's a rip in the uh, in the acetate, not a crack in the glass. Okay, but contrast. God is faithful. God is always faithful. This is the Greek word iase. E-A-S-E-I. This is a future active indicative. The future means that it that what it, he will always be, no matter what the circumstances, he will always be uh, faithful. It is what's called a nomic future. Nomic just classifies the kind of future that it is, and nomic means that it is a principle that is always true, a, a rule that you can always count on. It is a standard, an absolute. God is always faithful. He will always do the same thing in every circumstance. He will always abide by His promise. God will never go back on His Word. He will always do what He says He will do. He will always provide what He says He will provide. There is no testing that has come upon you but what is common to man, but God is always faithful and will not allow in His omnipotence, will not allow any of us to be tested beyond our ability. Now, here we have a very important word. It's the same word, perasmas. It is perasthenai. It is the aorist passive indicative. Now, passive here, the passive voice means that the subject, that is you, the believer, are acted upon by this test that immediately tells us that the idea here in this passage is talking about external testing, not internal temptation from the sin nature. There is no external test that has come upon you except what is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested. External, there's no circumstance in life, no situation that's outside of God's control. God is sovereign, that means He's the ruler of the universe, and everything within the universe is subject to God's veto. Even Satan, as we see when he uh, comes to God to want to test uh, Job in the first chapter of Job, has to uh, get permission from God before he can do anything to test Job. So those tests that Satan was putting Job through in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, came. he was under the authority of God. Satan does not have the authority to just do whatever he wants to to a believer whenever he wants to. He must get get God's permission first. So, this tells us that God is faithful. He will never allow us to be tested beyond our ability, but will, with the test, also make a way of escape. Now, a lot of times when people read that, that's about where they stop. At least mentally, that's where they stop. 
because they think that what that means is that as soon as they get under the pressure of adversity, that if they claim this promise, that God's going to make the adversity go away. The adversity is going to stay there. The pressure is going to be there. The issue is what's going to happen in the believer's soul. God has provided solutions to every single problem that we will ever face. Let me see here. Find the right overhead. Wrong one. Here we go. Here is you, the believer, down here. Five circles representing the interaction of the different parts of our soul. We are self-conscious. That means we are aware of who we are. When we look in the mirror, we identify ourselves. We have mentality. That means we can think. There's a very faint line through the mentality to indicate that there are two different lobes or two different realms within our mentality. One represents the area of the mind, what, what the Bible calls the noose, which is the staging area where we learn things, where academic doctrine that is uh, learned academically is stored. And the other side, the right-hand side, is the uh, called by the Bible the heart, or cardia. And it refers to the right lobe of the soul. This is where epinosis doctrine, full doctrine, full knowledge doctrine is stored, where it can be called upon and uh, by the Holy Spirit and brought to mind, and we can apply it. Now, the picture that I have drawn around here is what the, the fortress, the bulwark that God provides around us as a result of our use of these ten stress busters. We have confession, 1 John 1, 9, the filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians uh, 5.18, uh, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, our personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, inner happiness. And these ten provide our bulwark so that when we face adversity, we do not convert that adversity into stress. Remember, there's nothing that we can do about adversity. Adversity it happens to everybody. Stress is optional. Stress is up to you and it's up to your volition whether or not you're going to respond to something in stress. Now, this idea is present throughout the Scriptures. I want to give you some Scriptures now that describe this fortress that God provides around the soul. Passages like Psalm 18.2. Here David prays, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He uses the metaphor of rock and fortress in order to communicate the idea that when he faces adversity, when he faces his enemies, when he faces whatever external adversity there is in his life, protection comes not from his own innate ability, not from his own skills as a warrior, not from his own intellectual abilities, but from the Lord. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So we see that this protection that surrounds the believer's soul is described by terms like rock, fortress, deliverer, stronghold. Psalm 31.3 For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy name's sake. And whenever we see in Scripture a reference to the name of the Lord, name in the Bible has to do with a person's essential quality, their basic character, who and what they are. Often in the Old Testament, a person had several names. We know them by a name such as Abram's first name was Abram. Then God gave him a new name, Abraham, meaning uh, father of, of multitudes. Uh, 
Isaac was called Isaac because when God promised Abraham and Sarah that he was going to give them a son within the next year, Sarah's off in the next room listening, eavesdropping, and she just starts laughing because Abraham's 99 years old and she's 90. It's a long time since uh, they ever had any uh, intimacy between them and there was no way they were going to have any children. And she started laughing and the Lord heard her laughing in the next room and said, for that reason you'll name him Yitzhak or laughter. So a name refers to something's eternal, uh, basic, essential characteristics. For example, when God created Adam, his first responsibility was to go out and name all of the animals. So Adam doesn't have a wife yet. And part of what God was doing was to show him that all the animals had a companion, but he didn't. There was no Mrs. Adam yet. And he was going to look around, see all these animals go by, and he was going, no, 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 they've got a partner, they've got a partner, but there's no partner for him. And as they went by, he observed their characteristics. Probably the first example of a zoological uh, observation. Uh, and he evaluates each animal and gives them a name on the basis of their characteristics. Following in the footsteps are the precedent established by God in the first three or four days of creation. So name has to do with something's essence or characteristics. For thy essence sake. For thou art my rock and my fortress. For thy essence sake. And often this refers to who God is in terms of his integrity, his righteousness and his justice. For thy name's sake. Because of your reputation. Thou wilt lead and guide me. God has a reputation that He must uphold within the angelic conflict. He must. He will because He is faithful, but He must, because of His position in the angelic conflict, take a stand for the believer and protect Him. He is always, He is and He always will be our rock and our fortress. Psalm 71.3 Be thou to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for Thou art my rock and my fortress. Over and over again, the believer is told that God provides a fortification for the believer's soul so that whatever happens, whatever the travail, whatever the adversity, whatever the suffering, that God provides the protection so that the believer will survive. As long as you are alive, no matter what's happening, no matter how terrible it may be, no matter what you're going through, if you're still alive, then God still has a plan for your life. And if you're still alive when the dust settles, then that means that God is providing an opportunity for you to grow spiritually in the midst of this crisis. Because any level of suffering, any level of adversity, is a means by which we accelerate our spiritual growth because it's only in those times that we can really apply the doctrine that we have stored in our soul. Psalm 91 you might want to turn there in your Bible. Psalm 91 is an extended passage that deals with this whole principle. Psalm 91. Psalm 91.1 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, when David says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, how do we dwell in the shelter of the Most High? We dwell in the shelter of the Most High by, taking, by making learning Bible doctrine and applying in our lives the highest priority in our lives. We do it through knowing who and what God is and what His provisions are for the believer's life. We dwell there. We live there. We live in the midst of, his, uh, of thoughts about Him and 
the, the doctrine that provides the shelter for us. We stay in fellowship. We keep short account in reference to the sin in our lives. We dwell continually in the shelter of the Most High. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Here, David is exercising the faith rest drill. Three stages to the faith rest drill. Stage number one is mixing the promises of God with faith to stabilize the soul. Stage number two is gleaning from these promises a relevant doctrine or rationale to apply. Well, here he's applying a form of a rationale. He's saying, God is my refuge and my fortress. He is a refuge and a fortress, so I can trust in Him. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There never was, there is never a problem that is too great for God. Therefore, we can trust God to solve that problem. So David here is using a, uh, a, the doctrine of the essence of God in order to relate it to his problems, knowing that God will uh, provide for him and will protect him. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 3, For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. What is He talking about here? These are various categories of adversity. The snare of the trapper, by application, refers to the temptation, the external trap. We see that image used later on in James 1, that sin is like a trap. It is a trap that's set out there and baited with something that entices us. And as soon as we take the bait, the trap closes and snaps shut and we're trapped in sin and in carnality. So the image here is it is God who delivers us from temptation. How does He deliver us from temptation? Through the problem-solving devices. This is the essence of the spiritual life, being able to utilize these through Bible doctrine. God delivers us from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Now, this may come, adversity may come. You may go through a lot of heartache. You may go through a lot of physical trauma. You may go through a lot of mental anguish to a certain degree. But what we know is that our soul will never be destroyed. Our soul will never become fragmented as long as we stay in fellowship and apply God's Word. In the midst of that, we have inner happiness, tranquility, contentment, stability, emotional stability. We can make good decisions and wise decisions because we have doctrine in our soul, we have doctrinal orientation, so we can, can uh, when we're faced with various options, we can think clearly and we can choose the wise course of action. That's what Proverbs is all about, choosing that wise course of action. For it is He, God, who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the d- deadly pestilence. How does He do this? Here's a picture of, of an eagle wrapping his wings around the young to provide protection. It's a beautiful metaphor. He will cover you with his pinions. Now, this is not a literal description of God. Here we come to one of those uh, words that's important to learn, to be able to think accurately about God. And this is the word anthropopathism, or anthropomorphism, rather. Excuse me. Anthropomorphism. From the Greek word anthropos, meaning man, and morphe meaning form. It is attributing to God physical characteristics or attributes which He does not actually possess. This is a, an anthropomorphism is attributing to God 
physical human physical attributes or forms which he does not actually possess. Another word is zoomorphism, and that's more accurately what this is, and that is attributing to God using a metaphor of an animal and attributing to God animal forms or attribute physical attributes which he does not actually possess. And in this case, it's using the description of wings and pinions. God does not have wings or pinions. He does not look like a bird. He does not have the physical attributes of a bird. But it is using those physical attributes of a bird, using the image imagery of an eagle to portray the protection of God. Just as an eagle, uh, a mother eagle will wrap her wings around her young to provide protection for them, so God protects us. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. There we have a potential case. You may seek refuge. A subjunctive idea indicating that it's up to your volition whether or not you seek refuge or not. When we look at the soul, the soul is made up of our self-consciousness, mentality, volition, emotion, and conscience. The volition is the decider of the soul. We can either decide for or against God. When we reject the stress busters, try to solve our problems on our own, trying to use human viewpoint techniques to resolve the uh, adversity in our lives so that we can go on on our own, then what happens is the fortress falls apart, crumbles away, and adversity pierces the soul where it becomes stress in the soul. Stress then gradually eats away at our emotional stability and our ability to concentrate with our mind, and it can ultimately lead to neuroses and psychoses. So we have to exercise positive volition. You must exercise positive volition. If you don't, you will make yourself absolutely miserable in life. Everything will throw you one way or the other, and you will just be an emotional basket case because you have no stability whatsoever. And I'll tell you, I read a report four or five years ago that one of the mental institutions in Southern California that had a population that was like 80 or 90 percent Pentecostal, charismatic believers. And the reason is they try to solve everything emotionally rather with doctrine. And because they never take in doctrine, never focus on doctrine, but focus on experience and emotion then the result is they never learn and apply doctrine. Their souls are not fortified or edified. The fortification here is very similar to the New Testament concept that Paul talks about in terms of the edification of the soul. Edification means to build up or to strengthen the soul. And what is it that strengthens the soul is Bible doctrine. And from that doctrine that is stored in your soul, you then develop these, utilize these various problem-solving devices and, and stress busters to prevent your soul from weakening and fragmenting under pressure. God provides the protection. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Now, His faithfulness... Again, we have metaphor here. His faithfulness is not an actual shield. It's like a shield. Remember, there, whenever you study in the... Uh, especially the poetry of the Old Testament, you have to distinguish various uh, figures of speech, metaphors, call something something. They designate. It says God uh, 
His faithfulness is a shield. Well, it's not an actual physical shield. We would understand that by saying His faithfulness is like a shield. But when it uses the word like or as, it is a simile. It is a metaphor if it is an unstated comparison. It's a stated comparison. It uses like or as. And it's a simile. Here we have a metaphor. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So here we, the various synonyms that are used to describe this fortification around our soul are, are key words to give us this image. What have we seen so far? Rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, stronghold, bulwark, rock of habitation, refuge. He delivers from the snare. He covers with His pinions under His wings. He provides protection. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. What a tremendous image is given us from these Old Testament passages about the protection for our soul that the Lord provides in times of difficulty. And these times of difficulty are further explained in, starting in Psalm 91.5. You will not be afraid of the terror by night. This is reaching a doctrinal conclusion. If God has done all of this, if He is our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our refuge, our shield, our horn of salvation, our stronghold, our bulwark, our uh, fortress, our refuge, then what's the conclusion? There's nothing to be afraid of. Because if God is omnipotent, if He is all-powerful, then there is no power on heaven or on earth that is greater than the power of God. If He is omniscient, then there is no circumstance, no difficulty, no problem, no heartache, no adversity, no matter what it is that He did not know about billions and billions of years ago. So we can use a doctrinal rationale saying that if God is omniscient, then God knew about this billions and billions of years ago and in His omnipotence, He provided the perfect solution for it. And that perfect solution comes through His Word. It doesn't come any other way. As a result of that, we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid of the terror by night. Now, what is the terror by night? The terror by night is that unknown and unrealized terror. Remember when you were a kid, Perhaps this is true even now. You go to bed and it's dark and you're afraid of the boogeyman. You want to look under the bed to see if somebody's hiding under the bed. You think of, imagine all kinds of monsters that are there. And none of those things ever happen. When you get caught up in worry, often many of the things that we worry about happening never ever come to pass. We spend all of this time and all of this energy generating all of this, this, this sin of worry and we're anxious and we're upset and yet those things never come to pass. And we forget to rely on the Lord and we spend all of that energy worrying about these things that might happen instead of focusing on the wonderful provision that we have in the Lord. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, whether it's a real terror or whether it's an imagined terror. We can sleep. We can be at rest. We can have peace and tranquility and not worry about anything. Philippians uh, four, five, and six says, "Be anxious for nothing." That means don't worry about anything. Period. Now, don't worry about some things, but now these things are okay for you to worry about. It says, "Don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing." What's the contrast? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Now, that thanksgiving is very critical. Gratitude to God for our circumstances, for being in the circumstances, for having those circumstances. Whatever they might be, being grateful for that is one of the keys to growth in the spiritual life. We're going to look at that when we get there this evening. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And what? What's the result of that? And the peace of God, the tranquility, contentment, which passes, surpasses all understanding, shall guard. Here we have that concept again of a fortress around our soul. Shall guard, and the peace which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is, if you are in fellowship and using the problem-solving devices. So, worry is a mental attitude sin that is destructive to the soul. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. The imagined or the real adversity of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Now, you can't see a pestilence. You can't see germs. You don't know whether you're going to catch something or not. It's not in your control. So, why worry about it? something totally outside of your control. It's in the hands of the Lord. It's been in His plan for eternity past and it's not for us to worry about. The issue is if the pestilence comes our way, then that's when we get the opportunity to utilize the problem-solving devices, have the peace of mind that God gives us and to be a visual testimony of God's provision to those around us because we're not going to push the panic button and fall apart like everybody else. Of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Notice a new image here. Dwelling place. Not just spending some time here on occasion because all of a sudden now the adversities are really getting out of control. So I'm going to go to Bible class for a little while just to make, just until everything sort of smooths out, and then, well, then we'll see. That's the attitude of most people. They wait until life gets too rough, or they they lose their job. Everything seems to fall apart. Their their marriage is on skids. Everything else seems to be going south. And at that point, they're going to get try to do it God's way until everything kind of stabilizes out, and then they'll go back to doing it their way again. But this is the idea of a dwelling place, continual habitation. Not just when times are rough, but all the time. Good times, bad times, wonderful times, heartaches, disasters, prosperity, adversity, whatever it may be, making the Most High your dwelling place. And the result of this is that God fortifies the soul. Now, what are these ten problem-solving devices? Last week, we started to go through these distress busters again. Just to give you one more review of these definitions... Well, we, run out of, we ran out of time last week. We won't run out of time uh, this week. Problem-solving device number one is rebound. Confession. Admitting or acknowledging your sins to God. It's a very legal term. This is not an emotional term. Confession does not mean to feel sorry for your sins. Confession does not mean that you need to somehow uh, convince God through your remorse that you're never going to do it again. God is, number one, omniscient. And number two, He's not a fool. And num- therefore, number three, He knows that in 15 minutes you're going to be doing it again. You may shock yourself. You may shock the person sitting next to you. But you will never shock God because God knows each and every sin that you've ever, you will ever commit from eternity past. So the issue is not how do you feel about your sin. The issue is how God feels about it that you are going to admit or acknowledge your sin privately to God the Father. At that moment, you are restored to fellowship. Three things happen simultaneously. 
you are you recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, you're restored to fellowship with God, and you can re- resume your spiritual growth. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you've admitted your sins to God and you're back in fellowship, that you're going to automatically grow. That's not what happens. What happens when you rebound, what happens is it puts you back in a position where you can grow. But what happens with so many people, especially immature spiritual babies, is as soon as they confess that sin, they really like that sin. And as they're confessing it, another part of their personality is pursuing it again, so they're only in fellowship for a microsecond, and then they're back out of fellowship. And that's the way it is with most spiritual babies. Until they get enough doctrine in their soul and begin to understand some things and begin to stay in fellowship for more than a microsecond or two, they don't grow very much. They spend maximum amount of time out of fellowship. They just bounce back and forth uh, several times during the day. With most of the time that they're out of fellowship, most of the time during the day they're out of fellowship. But we have to let babies be babies. They will eventually grow up if they stick with doctrine. If they keep coming to Bible class, they will eventually learn that as long as they keep sinning, as long as they keep out of fellowship, they're going to stay under the law of volitional responsibility and under divine discipline. And even though their suffering for discipline may become suffering for blessing, it's still suffering. And before long, you begin to realize that, no, it's really not a good idea for me to continue in these sins, whether they're mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, or overt sins. Rebound merely puts you back in a position where you can grow spiritually, and that's because of the second problem-solving device, the filling of the Holy Spirit. So I've said this really technically should be translated filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of two power options in the believer's life. The second power option is doctrine, the Word of God. You compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16 and you will discover that the consequences of both, which follow in the, in the uh, following verses, are, are the re- they have the same results. The Word of God does not operate independently of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God does not operate independently of the Word of God. You are filled in your soul by means of to understand doctrine and to apply doctrine. But He does not apply it for us. He does not control our volition. Once you get in back in fellowship and you are in a position where you are filled by means of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit will guide and direct you through the Bible doctrine in your soul but you have to make the decisions to apply the doctrine in your soul. That sometimes is the most difficult part of the whole operation. So the soul of the believer, this is defined as the soul of the believer under the temporary control of the Holy Spirit, the divine provision of the power of God to execute the Christian life. This absolute status may be lost through sinning, but is recovered through privately naming or acknowledging sins to God the Father, 1 John 1, 9. Faith rest drill. The believer's basic problem-solving device for claiming the promises of God and mixing them with faith through the filling of the Holy Spirit to generate tranquility of soul in the midst of the adversities of life. This is the fundamental to every subsequent problem-solving device. If you don't get faith rest drilled down, you'll never get to grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, uh, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind. You'll never get there. You've got to understand faith rest drill. Faith rest drill involves three stages, mixing the promises of God with faith, and that means you must know the promises of God. You must be memorizing Scripture. 
You must do whatever it takes to get those promises into your soul so when the adversities of life hit, you can have the doctrine, the promises of God in your soul to fall back on. Okay, the fourth problem-solving device. Now, some of you have commented on these um, on these definitions, and I want you to know that these definitions have been taken from what one day will be published as Themes uh, Bible Doctrine Dictionary. For the last two years, I did other things as well, but that was a primary project. I was editing the Themes Bible Doctrine Dictionary. It may be another two years before it's actually published, but we do have a really good rough draft of it done. And um, it's going to be about a hundred pages of doctrinal definitions and descriptions and diagrams, everything together, both traditional theological terms and those that, that are unique to Colonel Themes Ministry. But that's where these come from. So it took a lot of time and effort and a lot of work just building one of these definitions. You'd be amazed at how difficult it is to write a good definition and how time-consuming it is. Okay, fourth is grace orientation. Aligning our thoughts and actions to the non-meritorious policy of God based on the firm assurance that we receive the consideration, equity, and care of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Orientation means to align yourself to something. Whenever you're out traveling and you have a map, that map represents reality. If you're not properly oriented to that map or that map is not oriented to your surroundings correctly, then you're going to be divorced from reality and you're going to be lost. And if you're turned around, you're going to be headed south when you think you're headed north. And you're never going to get where you want to get. And if your desire is to achieve spiritual maturity and glorify God in your life, then you first have to be oriented to grace. Grace is God's policy for the human race. Everything that God does with the human race is based on His policy of grace. And that means God does all the work and man receives it. God does not bless man because of what He does. God blesses man because man possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ which he received as a free gift. You're not blessed because you come to church, because you give to the church, because you witness to ten people or any other thing. Now that doesn't mean those are bad things. Those are all part of our responsibilities to one degree or another uh, as part of the Christian life. But God doesn't bless us for those things. God blesses us, number one, because we possess the imputed righteousness of Christ And number two, because we have grown spiritually to the point where God has always wanted to give us these things and bless us with these things, and now we have the capacity for them. God will never bless us beyond our capacity. So part of what we're doing in our training and doctrine is gaining capacity for the blessings that God has for us. Not to earn them, but to get to a position where we can appreciate them and they will not destroy us. So we have to understand the second part of the definition when we understand God's grace policy toward us and how little we deserve the incredible bounty He provides, we grow spiritually, our thinking adapts to His procedures, and we begin to apply that charitable policy of undeserved favor to ourselves and to others. We become increasingly sensitive to and tolerant of the weaknesses of those around us. Ephesians 4, 31-32. Fifth, doctrinal orientation. That means we have to align our lives to Bible doctrine. This is the renovation and alignment of the believer's thinking to the plan of God through metabolized doctrine circulating in the stream of consciousness of the right lobe of the soul, remembering and applying Bible doctrine resident in the soul so that divine viewpoint characterizes and permeates a believer's thinking. When your thinking is just saturated with doctrine, that's when you're beginning to get somewhere in the spiritual life. Six, 
a personal sense of our eternal destiny. Now, I add the word eternal because I think that too many people think it has to do with their temporal destiny, their job, their career, whatever it is in life. When you understand where you're headed in terms of eternity, that what you are now, the decisions you make now, today, determine the capacity that you're going to have to enjoy and appreciate heaven, that who you are, what the decisions you make now will determine who and what you are for eternity. They will determine your rewards. They will determine your position in heaven. All of that is determined by what you do now. When you start living your life today in light of who you're going to be in eternity, then you're beginning to get an idea of what the spiritual life is all about. But until you get to that point, you're still living as if the only thing that matters is what's going on in your life today. And the key to the Old Testament saints was that they were looking for a city a city that was built without hands. They weren't focused. Abraham lived in a tent, but he was focused on that eternal city he was going to live in. So he had a personal sense of his eternal destiny. This is defined as you are becoming today what you will be for eternity. As the believer advances to spiritual adulthood, he develops absolute confidence in God's plan, developed through learning doctrine and utilizing the first five problem-solving devices as he continues his advance in the spiritual life. As the believer begins to live his life in the light of eternity, it results in an enhanced capability to objectively and accurately evaluate himself, to overcome adversity and deter stress, and to solve problems. His future develops specific dimensions and a sharp focus. The believer's individual niche in the plan of God acquires a personal perspective, and with this sense of one's own destiny, the maturing believer begins to know and experience the shared destiny with Christ as his own. We are going to be joint heirs with Christ. That's what that refers to. Romans 14, 7-8. Seventh problem-solving device is personal love for God the Father. As a believer learns and applies doctrine and his knowledge of God increases, he responds with respect. We can't love what we don't know. Love demands knowledge. Love is not just some emotional, sentimental feeling about God that isn't it wonderful and we just kind of go home and emote over how good it feels and then ten seconds later the roof falls in on us and, and, and we fall apart. Because emotion will never sustain. Emotion changes with the wind. We have to have something with stability. So the kind of love that the Bible talks about is a love that is grounded in the mental attitude of the soul and has nothing to do with emotion. As the believer learns and applies doctrine, his knowledge of God increases. He responds with respect, admiration, reverence for who God is and what He has done. Only God is absolute perfection. Therefore, He is the only worthy object of personal love. The virtue generated from personal love for God provides the only basis for value and stability in human love. Eight. Let me see if I've got eight with me. Maybe I lost one. I think I lost one. Here it is. Eight. Unconditional love for all mankind. That means that we don't place conditions on other people that they have to live up to before we're going to treat them in love. Unconditional love for all mankind. It's the consistent function of individual integrity toward friends, enemies, loved ones, strangers. It is a non-emotional, unconditional regard for the entire human race that does not require intimacy, friendship, attractiveness, or even acquaintance with a specific object of love. You treat them not on the basis of who they are or what they do, not even on the basis of who you are and what you do, unless you're a spiritually mature believer and have the character of Christ formed in you. We treat people on the basis 
of who God is and what Christ has done for us. We are to forgive others as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. God is the standard for how we treat our enemies, how we treat those who treat us wrongly, how we treat those who who we don't think deserve it or who we don't really care too much about. Unconditional love derives from the virtue of the subject. So true love is virtue dependent. One of the problems today in most relationships is there's no virtue. If there's no virtue, there can be no true love. Love is virtue dependent. Unconditional love derives from the virtue of the subject, not the appeal or the merit of the object of love, and views all people through the eyes of a virtuous character that is built on Bible doctrine and personal love for God the Father. That's the foundation. If you don't have personal love for God the Father developing in your soul, then your ability to love other people is going to be diminished because it's built upon the concept that God forgives us that we forgive others just as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. He is the model. So if we have little love for God, we will little be able to have unconditional love for others. Nine, inner happiness. The mental attitude of the spiritually maturing believer who maintains an attitude of optimism, reassurance, animation, and joy in every circumstance, including adversity. When the spiritual life takes precedence over external circumstances, in other words, when your happiness and your stability is no longer dependent on your external circumstances, that's when you're getting a handle on inner happiness. When the spiritual life takes precedence over external circumstances and the believer keeps his eyes on God's solutions rather than his own problems, remember the divine solution is the only solution and the human solution is not only no solution, but it's going to generate more problems. So when the spiritual life takes precedence over external circumstances and the believer keeps his eyes on God's solutions rather than his own problems, divine inner tranquility and contentment conquers unhappiness and overcomes any detrimental environment. John 15.11 and James 1.2 And finally, occupation with Christ, focusing on Jesus Christ. Asking the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, if you're an immature believer, you're going to come up with a stupid, silly, subjective answer to that. And that's how most Christians are because they don't know any doctrine. But remember, Bible doctrine, the Word of God, is the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Only if we know Bible doctrine, the Word of God, the mind of Christ, are we going to be able to accurately answer the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? We have to focus on Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12.2. This is occupation with Christ is defined as maximum personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ from Bible doctrine circulating in the stream of consciousness in the right lobe of the soul by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit so that the mind of Christ, Bible doctrine, influences every thought and action. These are the ten stress busters. As long as we're using them, we can have a life free from stress. We may have a tremendous amount of adversity. We may go through all kinds of storms. But if we're using the ten problem-solving devices, there will be no internal stress in the soul. There will be, we will not convert the external pressure of adversity into the internal pressure of stress in the soul. God is our bulwark, our fortress, our strength. He is the one who sustains us in every situation in life. And having learned all that, next week we'll come back and we will start going into James 1, 2 in a little more detail. We've just been providing a lot of background to understand some of these concepts. We're going to get into the doctrine of joy and inner happiness and how that is implemented 
in our life? How can we really put into practice inner happiness and joy? What is the key to having inner happiness? That's what we're going to see next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for who You are, what we've learned from Scripture. We thank You for Your character, that You are always faithful. You always fulfill Your promises to us. In every circumstance, in every situation, You will always respond the same way. So we can always count on You. No matter how we fail You, You never fail us. You are our bulwark. You are our strength. You are our fortress. You are the one in whom we take shelter from the storms of life. That no matter what the adversity, whether it has to do with external trauma or internal difficulties within our own lives, whatever it may be, we know that our soul is protected as long as we are utilizing these ten problem-solving devices. As long as our focus is on You, You protect us. We need to keep that. Father, I pray as we go throughout our week that no matter what uh, adversities we stress, be they large or small, that we remember to apply these doctrines, that the Holy Spirit would recall them to our minds, that we may use those opportunities to accelerate our spiritual growth. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.